you're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. It's great to have you along with us today here at Centerpoint as we're finishing up our series called A Vision of God. We've been looking at dramatic encounters described in the Bible where people had a close encounter with the living God. Now, I want to start today with an observation about popular culture. In the wake of the gigantic success of The Force Awakens, you know, I began wondering, what is it that makes the Star Wars franchise so popular? Now, as an introduction to our text today, let me try and offer an explanation. In the year 1969, two similar but very different films came out. One of them was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and the other one was True Grit. Now, both of these were set in the American West, but they have striking differences. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid starred Robert Redford and Paul Newman as the heroes, but really, they're anti-heroes. These guys are they're bank robbers, they're, they're train robbers, they're common but very clever thieves, and by the end of the film, we're, we're in love with them. We, we know that they ought to be thrown in prison for life, but it's Robert Redford and Paul Newman. You know, they're, they're so likable. We, when they meet their demise, we feel sorry for them. Now, the other film... True Grit stars John Wayne as U.S. Marshal Rooster Cogburn. He's hired by a woman to track down the bandits who killed her father and bring them to justice. Now, unlike Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad. There's no moral ambiguity. You don't wonder if Rooster Cogburn has some ulterior motive. It's John Wayne. He might be rough, but he's good, and he's going to do what's right. The deal is, we live in a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of world. We love the moral ambiguity of thinking, well, maybe the bad guys aren't really all that bad, and, you know, the good guys have flaws as well. It's much more sophisticated to say, well, there's really no such thing as real good and real bad. There really aren't these neatly defined categories. But deep in our hearts, we want, we need U.S. Marshal Rooster Cogburn to come riding into town on a white horse and arrest the bad guys and bring justice to the town. And that's why Star Wars is so popular. In the first film, when Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader start swinging lightsabers at each other, there's no ambiguity, there's no question who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. You know, the first Star Wars film was basically a Western film set in space. The bad guys capture the princess and the good guys come and rescue her. We love that because deep down, we have huge reservations about a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of world. We need the moral clarity of a hero who comes in and saves the day. And that's what our Bible lesson today is all about. As we finish our series called A Vision of God, today we're going to see that the end of the story is a happy one. At the end of the story, the sheriff comes riding back into town on a white horse. He arrests the bad guys and throws them into prison. He rescues those who've been living under the tyranny 
and restores moral order in the universe. Today we're going to see that Jesus is the conquering king who defeats all of God's enemies and brings God's people safely into their destiny. So join me, if you would, in Revelation chapter 1. This is on page 664 in the Bibles that are around on the seats. Now we're going to read about a vision that John the Apostle had when he had been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Now this is an island in the Aegean Sea about 50 miles southwest of Ephesus. So we're in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 18 and then we'll pray and ask God to give us understanding of his word. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray and ask God to give us understanding of his word. Father, we thank you that John was faithful, that he did wrote, write this vision that you gave him, and it's preserved for us in scripture so that we have a deeper insight into your nature and who you are and what you're up to and how the story is going to end. So, Father, as we ponder and meditate and study your word today, we pray that you'd come by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're here with us, God. Open our hearts to understand and believe that we might obey your word today, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to begin today by putting uh, our text into the larger context of the Bible. Now, it's helpful if we think about the Bible as one story with several different chapters. Now, the first chapter answers the question, where did we come from? And the answer is from God, the eternal one who is both personal and relational. Now, the second chapter asks the question, why did things go so wrong? And it gives us the answer, because of sin, which brings separation from God, spiritual death, bondage, and condemnation, and guilt. The third chapter is about the good news. Who will put things right? And the answer is 
Jesus. Now, chapter 3 has several different sections. First, the incarnation. God becomes a man. Second, the substitution. Jesus, the God-man, took our place. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And he rose from the dead as a pioneer of our destiny. The third part of chapter 3 is a section called restoration. And it's actually like sowing the seeds for a sequel. It's like pointing that there's another bit of the film that's coming. It's been promised, it's been started, but it's not done yet. And so that today is, is what our text is all about. Now the fourth chapter makes it all personal for us and asks the question, how can I be put right? And the very clear answer that the Bible gives is, through faith. God has extended his grace, his unmerited love and favor towards us in Christ, and our response is to trust him. Through faith, we come to experience and participate in the victory that Jesus purchased for us or accomplished in chapter 3. So chapter 3 is about what Jesus did. Chapter 4 is how we get to experience the benefits of what he did. But when we get to the end of chapter 4, we realize that this really isn't the end. There's an epilogue to the book. There's another chapter. And here's the thing. This, this ending, it's been designed, it's been promised, and there are pictures of it in the Bible, but because we haven't yet experienced it, it feels a bit vague. And that brings us to the book of Revelation. Now, because Revelation is written in a very visual, metaphorical kind of language, it's generated many different kinds of interpretations over the years. But in some ways, this is a perfect book for our postmodern, very visual society. The book of Revelation is like a non-sequential story that's got lots of scenes and lots of images. Now, there are three key factors that help us understand what all this is about. First, according to chapter 1, verse 4, this is a letter written to specific churches in the Roman province in Asia. So the first big idea is that Revelation was written to real people who lived at a specific time in a specific place. We often tend to assume that it was directly written to us and that all of it's in the future, but that's not really true. Now, the second thing is that according to chapter 1, verse 1, John's told to write things that will soon take place. So John is writing to help these Christians who live in Asia in the late 1st century and early 2nd century understand what's going on in the world around them. And in verse 4, John calls himself a partner in tribulation. In other words, he is also going through a very difficult time with these Christians. And he's writing because he wants to help them understand that God is with them during their pain and their, during their difficulty. God is in charge. God is in control and he's got it worked out. And the third thing that we should notice is that, and this is the biggest idea really that I want you to get, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 starts with the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, it's three words, apocalypsis, Jesus Christos. Jesus Christos is Jesus Christ. But this word apocalypsis, translated here as revelation, it means to open, to lay bare, to make things known that were unknown, to bring into the open what was hidden. It's a manifestation or an appearance. So John is writing to churches and he's 
unpacking something. He's disclosing something. He's opening something up. But what is it that he's disclosing? What is it that he's unpacking, that he's bringing out into the light? It's Jesus. Jesus himself is the main point of the book of Revelation. He's the star. He's the hero. He's the conquering champion who comes riding in on a white horse and saves the day. So with that background, let's take a look at what's going on here. Starting in verse 12, we read this description that John gives us, this, this vision that he saw. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, there's a lot that's going on in this brief description. I want us to pause here for just a moment and unpack this a bit. The phrase, a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, links this appearance with the descriptions of the high priest of, of Israel in Exodus 39. And also earlier in chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to God, his Father. So one of the ideas right here is that Jesus is the one who represents us to the Father. He is our high priest, and this is symbolized by his clothing. Now, his hair appeared like wool, as white as snow. You know, in the ancient world, white hair symbolized the respect that was due to the aged for their wisdom that they had accrued through all their years of living. So this is pointing the, to the wisdom of Jesus, to the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus is omniscient. He knows what's best for his people, even when they're suffering. The eyes of Jesus appeared like blazing fire. Jesus sees everything there is. Not only does he know everything, but like he promised at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he'll always be with us. He sees the evil in the world. He sees what his people are going through, and he's with us in the midst of it. The feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now, one of the messianic psalms looks forward to the king's ultimate victory when it announces, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this picture is of a powerful king who has so subdued his enemies that they're nothing more than a footstool for his feet. Now, there were some ancient kings who symbolized their victories by literally placing their feet on the necks of their defeated enemies. Now, these powerful feet of Jesus point to his ultimate triumph over all the forces of evil. So Jesus is not only all-knowing and seeing everything everywhere, he's also all-powerful. Now, the voice of Jesus is compared to the sound of rushing waters, a sound that cannot be ignored. Now, on the island of Patmos, John likely never got away from the insistent sound of the breakers coming in off the Mediterranean Sea. In our lives, the voice of Jesus is the word of God that must be constantly heard and obeyed. 
And in the right hand of Jesus, John saw seven stars. Now in verse 20, the stars are explained as the angels of the seven churches. Now the Greek word angelos means messenger. And so some New Testament scholars interpret these stars as the human messengers, those whose job it was to convey this message of revelation safely to their respective churches. So these are the pastors responsible for preaching the message of revelation to their congregation. Now John's main point here is that Jesus held these pastors in his personal care and protection. And that brings us to the last bit, this, or the strangest part of the picture, and that is that out of his mouth is coming a sharp double-edged sword. Now it's not a little dagger. It's a long battle sword. This sword stands for Jesus' power to protect his people by judging and conquering his enemies. And then finally, saved for the last because it's probably the most important part of the vision, John describes the face of Jesus. He says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This powerful glory of Jesus is a key theme in Scripture, and it points to points to his full deity. In Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. When Paul, we read last week, when Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he said that it was brighter than the sun. Now, what happened when Paul saw the Lord? He and all the guys who were with him were knocked off their horses and fell down to the ground. Now, what happens here when John sees the Lord? In verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now remember, this is John the Apostle. This is John who walked with Jesus and who knew Jesus. This is John who saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is John who saw the resurrected Jesus. John knew Jesus. But none of that prepared him for the glory to be revealed when Jesus comes back. This glory overwhelmed him, and John fell at his feet as a dead man in a posture of absolutely humble worship. But look at the response of Jesus. He doesn't say, yeah, you better be down there. No, what does Jesus say? Fear not. Fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Do not fear. The sheriff's in town, and he's going to make everything okay. I'm the first and the last. From the beginning of time until the end of time, and throughout all eternity, I'm the boss. I am the living one. I'm the creator and the sustainer of life. Because he has unending life, Jesus has the power to extend eternal life to all those who trust him. Jesus says, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now, in history, in time, what we celebrated earlier at the Lord's table, Jesus won the victory over sin and death by dying in our place. But that victory was once and for all. Jesus is never, ever, ever going to die again. And finally, Jesus says, I have the keys of death in Hades. Now, keys are for unlocking and locking doors. 
Hades is the Greek name for the Roman god Pluto, who was the god of the underworld. So Hades is used in scripture as a shorthand reference to the grave, to death, and to hell. So Jesus says that he has the keys of these two twin monsters, death and Hades. The power of death and hell are, are limited. They're constrained by the one who holds the keys. At the final judgment, Jesus is able to open the doors of death and bring everyone out and judge all those who have died. Now, according to Revelation chapter 20, death and Hades are ultimately thrown into the lake of fire. So as we stand back and, and look at this description as a whole, all that's going on here in Revelation chapter 1, wow, what a picture. In the book of Revelation, this, this picture of Jesus functions like a stamp of approval or a stamp of authority explaining on the front end why John can trust all the visions that he's going to be seeing. Now, for the Christians who are reading this letter and for us, all of this is a glorious reminder that Jesus really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In his first appearance, Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb. But in his second appearance, Jesus is coming back as the conquering king. Now, some people get confused because they can only see the lambness of Jesus. The book of Revelation is affirming, yes, he is the lamb who died, but he's also the king who rose and who reigns and who is coming again in power. John goes on in the rest of this book to describe a series of conflicts. This king, he's got, he's got a lot of enemies. There are beasts, there's dragons, there's Satan, there's Babylon. And this image of Jesus at the beginning of the book gives us a little glimpse of the hero. Like at the beginning of the movie, you, you see some foreshadowing that, that this guy's the good guy and he's going to win. And that this is, that's what this is. It's an early indicator that Jesus is going to win. The good guys are going to win and as you read through this book and read about beasts and dragons and all this tumult it's important to keep this image in mind we met the hero the most important thing in revelation is the revelation of jesus the victorious one the conquering one the winning one and there are lots of different characters that you meet as you read through this book and you know i get distressed when christians focus on the bad guys you know, they wonder who's the beast Who's the dragon? What's the dragon doing? Are we living in Babylon? Oh no, it's really dark. The point isn't what the beast is doing. The point is what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is winning. In chapter 17, verse 14, John writes, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. The Lamb wins. Jesus wins. The Lord of lords and King of kings, he wins. That's why at the end of the book, there's the biggest party ever. There's rejoicing in heaven because Babylon has fallen and the beast has been defeated and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And underlining this victory, John describes the re triumphal return of the king at the end of the story. And this is how he describes it. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Bible version of True Grit where U.S. Marshal Rooster Cogburn comes riding into town on a horse, arrests the bad guys, and restores justice. John is telling us that at the end of the story, the sheriff comes riding back into town on a white horse. Now, some people try to use verse 16 as a justification for getting a tattoo, but the point that John is making and the point of this whole book is that the ultimate victory is never in question. Jesus wins on the first page, Jesus wins on the last page, and Jesus wins on every other page in between. From heaven's perspective, the end of the story has already been written. It's never in question. We win. Our difficulty is that we don't have heaven's perspective. We live in the daily ups and downs of human life. We live under the tyranny of our emotions our circumstances, our thoughts, our feelings. We make judgments about how things are going based on the news headlines that populate our favorite website. But John has written all of this so that we can live this life now with confidence in God that he has the whole deal under control. So here's the big idea. Even though the final chapter has been promised but not yet accomplished, we can live now in the revelation, in the confidence that the end of the story has been written. We can live with a huge dose of hope. It's not irrational. It's the most rational thing we can do. When you wake up tomorrow and your thoughts and your feelings are going a thousand directions, you've got family issues, work issues, church issues, political issues, economic issues, it things like, seems like things are going bonkers. In the middle of all that, you can live with the solid confidence that not only is God the Holy One, not only is He the Saving One, He's also the Conquering One. And through Christ, His victory is ours. Just like Jesus wins on every page of the Bible, He also wins in every day of our lives. I close with Paul's word to the Romans. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hang on, Betsy. The sheriff's on his way. God is the Holy One. He is the Saving One. But He is also the Conquering One. And through Christ, His victory is ours. Let's go to God in prayer.
Lord, you tell us in your word that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Lord, we confess that even though we're believers who have been seated with you in the heavenly places, we often adopt a very earthbound perspective. Lord, we thank you for this vision of God, this picture of Jesus, the powerful one, the conquering one, the victorious one. Lord, I pray that you would plant this picture deep in our hearts and minds. Yes, you were the lamb who died for us, but you were raised in newness of life and you will come again in ultimate power and glory. Lord, we thank you. Yes, you're the Holy One. You are the Saving One, but you're also the Conquering One. You are the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And we praise you this day, O God. And Lord, we pray that we would live each day of our lives in this awareness, in this hope, in this confidence, O oh God, that regardless of what tumults we, we see around us, regardless of where our emotions are up and down and all over the place, that living God, you've got the ultimate victory taken care of. From your perspective, it's a done deal. Drop this confidence into our hearts, O oh living God, that we might live each day for your glory. We ask this, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.